we believe as Christians that the only way uh, is through Christ. And so if Christ had not yet done his work, then what kind of uh, situation were they in? Let's try to look at that a different way. When we say Christ is the only way, well, the only way to the Father, if we get it from John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Um, but what does it mean to have a way to the Father? Sometimes we formulate that as the way to heaven. But remember, it's not supposed to be about a way to heaven. Heaven is the benefit. The benefits are nice. The benefits are given. But it's just a benefit, and that's not the main issue. The way to the Father through Christ talks about the way to relationship with the Father through Christ. It's not talking about the way to heaven directly. The main point of Christianity is not as a way to heaven. It's a way to be in relationship with God, and that happens through Christ. You know, sometimes when I'm having a conversation with someone who's not a Christian, they say, how come you Christians think that, like, you've got the only, only valid faith, the only way to get to heaven? And I said, oh, you've misunderstood. Christianity is not about a way to heaven. Well, yeah, but you think you're the only ones that get eternal life. I said, you're misunderstanding. Christianity is not about eternal life. Christianity is about relationship with Christ. And there's no other way that you get relationship with God through Christ except through Christ. That's just, you know, that's simply how it works. And so there's this misunderstanding outside the church and inside the church about what's involved. So let's take that, what we've learned the last two days, and take that to the question of Israel's status in terms of eternity. They understood that um, God had provided a mechanism for relationship. He did. God provided uh, his presence among them. He provided the sacrificial system. He provided the law as a means to relating to him and honoring him. The law and the sacrificial system were all mechanisms given by God, and therefore we assume they work, for relationship. If God says that's what will form a relationship, it will. But that did not have any eternal range to it. That was relationship in the here and now. But God had provided those mechanisms, and Israel, righteous Israel, had faith in those mechanisms. They believed that if God said doing those things will bring relationship, that indeed doing those things would bring relationship, and that was the goal, relationship. We have faith in the mechanisms that God has provided for relationship. Same as Israel. They had faith in the mechanisms God provided for relationship. We have faith in the mechanism God provided for relationship. For us, we know of a different mechanism. We don't use sacrifices. Okay, We don't have to worry about the, the temple as the geographical presence of God. We have God dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. And the mechanism God provided for relationship was Jesus. And so... Both we and the Israelites have faith in the mechanisms that God provided for relationship. We agree on that. It's just God revealed certain mechanisms to them, 
and God has revealed other mechanism to us. But we're both shooting for the same thing, ideally, that relationship with God. Now, those two systems of mechanism for relationship, faith in a mechanism for relationship, those two systems have their different benefit lists. The Israelite benefit list was the covenant blessings. And they could gain those blessings. Those are benefits. But those aren't the reason. An Israelite theoretically should not have been seeking relationship with God so they get the land. Okay? Or so that they become a big nation or have a large family. Those are benefits, but those aren't, the, those aren't supposed to be the motivations. Incentives, maybe. Motivations, no. Okay? And so they had a benefits list the covenant blessings. We have a benefits list. Again, same thing, faith in the mechanism God provided for relationship. We have a benefits list. Our benefits list is things like forgiveness, eternity, heaven, okay? That's a benefits list. Israel was not supposed to be motivated by the benefits list. We are not supposed to be motivated by the benefits list. Benefits are nice, and it's, it's the grace of God and the goodness of God that provide the benefits. But this is not all about benefits. It's all about relationship. So we have to keep our relationship and our benefits separate. Okay, now, so part of our benefit list is heaven. And that was not on Israel's benefit list. Part of our benefit list is eternal life. That was not on Israel's benefit list. Okay, because our benefit list came about by a stronger mechanism. The blood of Christ is a more, um, more efficient productive mechanism than the blood of bulls and goats could have been. Okay, so we have a better mechanism. That's Hebrews. We have a better mechanism. And therefore, a different benefits list. Okay, you following? You see how, how it's matching up. So, this is the pathway then to ask the question, okay, is it possible that the Israelites from of old, even though they didn't know it, could somehow gain the benefits in our benefit list? Right? I mean, that's the question. When we ask, are there Israelites in heaven? Okay? Can the Israelites, Abraham, Moses, David, can the Israelites of old, before Christ, they didn't have that mechanism, still somehow gain the benefits that we have through Christ? Okay? Yes, I think so. What would be the criteria? The criteria can't be believing in Christ. They didn't know about Christ. They couldn't be accepting of Christ. They don't know what Christ is going to do. You can't even say, believing what they knew about the Messiah and what he did do, they knew precious little about the Messiah, and that really wouldn't get them there. That had nothing to do with this kind of mechanism that we're talking about. After all, they never thought the, that the Messiah was going to die for their sins. Despite Isaiah 53, we can get to that another time. Okay? So, how could the Israelites inherit our benefits list? Only through Christ, how would that work? Here's my, my shot, my hypothesis. Okay? The most important thing is for them to have faith in the mechanisms God provided for relationship. And the faithful ones did. There were Israelites that had that faith in God for the, benefit, for the mechanism for relationship. Okay? Now, that wouldn't be enough to get our benefits list. But it's really doing what God wants of his people. Whether it's us or them or what period of time, they're doing what is expected. It's just they didn't have revelation of that mechanism that we have. So my theory is, 
Okay, the difference between a voucher and a ticket, a ticket is what actually gets you in, a voucher is what gives you a right to a ticket. Okay? Their faith in God and the mechanisms that he provided for relationship gets them a voucher. Theoretically, theologically, symbolically speaking. Okay? It gets them a voucher. Okay? That doesn't get them into heaven. It doesn't get them our benefits, but it gives them a voucher. Okay? The only means that they can cash that voucher in for a ticket for our benefits is once the work of Christ is done. Now, there are just a couple of Bible passages that give just the slightest hint of that kind of idea. Uh, one of them talks about the idea of Christ descending. Uh, Christ descending into, we talk, in the Apostles' Creed, we call it uh, descending into hell. That's not hell, the place of fire and eternal punishment. That's the netherworld, it's Hades. Okay, and why does he go there? Uh, the one interpretation of that is that he goes there actually to get those people who have vouchers and give them the ticket because he has now died. And they had the faith in the mechanisms that God had provided for relationship. And now the ticket is available to them. But again, wouldn't be until he actually did that work. The other verse that hints at that to me is actually in, in what is a key passage in this whole kind of conversation. It's Romans chapter 3. And if we read past that famous uh, verse about, you know, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, um, verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That's the mechanism we have. But now look at what it says in 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, that's the mechanism, to be received by faith. That's, we have faith in God who provided that mechanism. But then the last part of the verse. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What are the sins committed beforehand? That's by the Israelites who had not heard about Christ. He left those unpunished, gave him a voucher. Okay, not punished, but waiting. And then, now he did this. There had been forbearance. He had left those sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. That's, that's my guess. That kind of idea that they did not go straight to heaven. They had no hope of heaven, no revelation of heaven, no thought that that was possible. That benefits list was not known to them. But upon death, those faithful Israelites who had had faith in God and the mechanisms he provided for relationship, um, they have this voucher. But that voucher doesn't turn into our benefits list except through the blood of Christ because he is the only way. That's the best I can make of it. Um, again, you know, we can only know such things if the Bible tells us. If the Bible tells us, we just have to admit our ignorance or guess, or some combination. <laughs> okay, so I, I didn't want to leave that unaddressed um, because I had kind of set you up for that and then I left you hanging. So, uh, so now we can proceed to the, to the Q&A. Yeah, this is just a follow-on that, from that, um, what you just said. Are you saying that the Israelites up until Jesus didn't even have a concept of eternal life? 
what they talk about in Psalms and through the Old Testament, when they talk about um, life forever, uh, the, that term they're translating forever is not really a word that conveys eternity. It's a word that conveys open-ended, perpetual. And so they'll talk about perpetual life in the presence of God, but they still mean here. Um, they, they hope for uninterrupted life in the presence of God, but uh, not really the idea that they can extend that into eternity. So Jews today? No, Jews today, of course, have, have evolved a different religious idea. Um, so Jews today are not... Did they get that from Christianity? Um, no, they had already begun developing that in, between, in the uh, interim between the Testaments. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees have different opinions about the resurrection and about afterlife. So all of that develops in the intertestamental period. Um, I was just wondering, um, Percy, thank you for that. I thought that was really insightful. With that idea of mechanism, and I guess this may have a very short answer in that you may just say no uh, to it. Um, I put this question to a number of philosophers and wanted to put it to an Old Testament scholar. Are you familiar with René Girard's idea of the scapegoat mechanism? And uh, nope. What? Okay, so give, I'll give you a thumbnail sketch. He, he uh, is a kind of philosopher and anthropologist, and he puts forward the idea that um, Christ's death, rather than seeing Christ as the perfect scapegoat who thereby renders earlier sacrifices unnecessary or redundant, he says that the scapegoat mechanism marks a fundamental understanding with a natural religion or human religion that the vi- that. Um, there's a connection between violence and the sacred. And he said, rather than seeing Jesus as the perfect scapegoat who ends the scapegoating mechanism, Jesus is, in fact, someone who submits himself to the scapegoat mechanism to expose the relationship in religion between violence and the sacred and the idea of a God who would, would command death. Um, and in doing so, he ruptures the scapegoating mechanism. And I'm just guessing, I mean, it's a bit hard because you're not familiar with his work, mm-hmm. but... Any comments on that? As an Old Testament scholar, the idea of, you know, because we've been talking a lot about mechanisms, so perhaps what are your thoughts on the scapegoat mechanism? Yeah, Um, you know, those are just some more reasons why I'm not a philosopher. Um, (laughs) um, You know, the the only way I know to, to approach that is in terms of, okay, so how does Christ relate to the sacrificial system, including the scapegoat, the Passover, the sin offering, I mean, all of these things, the burnt offering. Um, as New Testament draws some of those connections, they're kind of all over the place, um, sometimes broadly speaking, and sometimes kind of picks up on this one or that one or the other one. And in the end, I think that it makes the most sense to talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system in various ways from various parts. And of course, the scapegoat is part of that. Uh, the scapegoat, that's Dave Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur for modern Israelis. Um, that, that's really the, one of the most central, um, important parts of the ritual system for Israel. Because um, imagine it, you know, I talked about the idea that the blood of the, the, uh, of the sacrifices kind of wipes away the, the grime of, of offense and sin. And so it's, it's antiseptic. But of course, some people didn't do that. Uh, not every sin was, was addressed in that way. And so you can imagine there's buildup. There's buildup of the graffiti and the dirt and the grime and the desecration. What's going to take care of that? 
if individual sacrifice did not. Well, that's what Day of Atonement was. Day of Atonement is a reset button. Okay? It was supposed to kind of, the, the priest starts out and he does all these rituals to move in to the very center of sacred space. And then he has the, the ritual way of kind of taking all of that buildup on, on him and pulling it back out through sacred space. And then in the end, having a combination of sacrifices and sending the scapegoat away, uh, getting rid of all of that, that desecration. So the image of the, um, of the Day of Atonement is a reset button for the sanctuary so that it kind of you know, goes back to the original specs. You know? And so that's, that's sort of what it does. Now again, there are ways in which Jesus does those sorts of things. Is he the scapegoat or is he the sacrificed goat? Is he the high priest? Is, you know, how, what role does he play? And again, you could view it any number of different ways. So I don't think there's a biblical way to view that. Um, again, I, I see that philosophically, he's talking about the violence in the system and all of that, and I'm, I'm not sure that's on the radar in the, the biblical text. After all, they didn't, they didn't um, have objections to the sacrificial system as acts of violence. They understood the acts of violence as necessitated by the depths of human sinfulness. Um, remember that the blood of the animal represented its life. And the life was necessary because they are gaining life as something else gives up life. And so, yes, in that sense, it is violent uh, because that's what it's uh, accomplishing. Um, since I, I'm going to ask a question now. I'm sitting in the audience. <laughs> yeah, the guy with question. the mic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are two specific but I think important questions um, around translation. So the first one is love, which uh, I... I've always thought it was amazing in Deuteronomy that uh, we're commanded to love God. We're told God loves us. I'm, I just want to clarify, this was unique in ancient Near Eastern context, the use of the word love for the gods. And just any comments on the, on the, on the translation, the particular word love mm -hmm. and its translation? Uh, yes, thank you for that. Um, and does that come out of your notes from the reading class? Anyway, um, I don't know if I talked about it there or not. Um, the, uh, the idea that the people in the ancient world were to love their gods, again, that's, that's just really not in the vocabulary, uh, not in the kinds of responses, um, uh, except in a very general way. And that meaning is possible in the Hebrew text as well. Uh, the word uh, to love as well as the word hate, it's opposite. Um, in one sense in Hebrew have to do with preference or non-preference, choice or non-choice. Okay, when the text says that God hates Esau, Jacob I have loved, Esau have I hated. We shouldn't be saying, oh no, you know, the New Testament says God loves everybody, you know, and that's a, that's a problem here, you know. But it's not. Um, that's just a simply way of saying God chose Jacob, he didn't choose Esau. And love and hate are ways of expressing preference or non-preference, favor or non-favor, choice or non-choice. Okay, that's what those terms uh, convey. Now the idea that a, someone in, in Babylon would love a god by choosing a god. You know, they didn't so much feel like they chose a god, but that a god chose them. But let me explain that. That's not election. Okay? When they talked about the idea of a personal god, and that is that when things started going well for them, at any point in their lives, something started going well, they would say, oh, a god must be favoring me. 
I wonder which one it is. You know, they would figure out that some God has targeted me for, for good fortune. So they might go to a priest or undergo some kind of process by which they could try to determine which God this might be, and they'd start offering that God sacrifices. Um, and so in that sense, they would show their devotion by meeting the needs of that God, because that God was meeting their needs, great symbiosis kinds of things. That's as close as they get to love, that is choosing that to God. Um, but th they wouldn't choose him like people might today, considering religions and saying, oh, what's this religion got to offer? And what's this religion got to offer? It would just be a sense that, that that God had stepped in on their behalf. And that's really, in some way, how Abraham would have responded to Yahweh. When Yahweh came and told him all of these things about the covenant, Yahweh would have just said, well, I've, I've, this God has shown interest in me. Cool. I'll, let's play that out. You know, in, in Babylonian texts, it's called acquiring a God. And it's just that, that this kind of workable ad hoc situation has taken shape. And so that's how they would have, would have viewed it. Uh, but loving God in any way that we think would not have been part of that profile. Now, in Deuteronomy, loving God... Um, again, this talks about consciously choosing God, but consciously choosing him involves this kind of response of relationship to him. And in this sense, we get love eventuating in a level of relationship. But it all comes from the idea of preferring as opposed to not preferring that particular God. Okay? The man with the mic. Lots of um, hands. Another question on translation. Um, Last week you talked about um, in uh, Genesis uh, form, formlessness um, and void and that being sort of chaos and disorder. And uh, again, the, referring to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Words. Uh, my question is, you know, we, we see the Bible as central to the revelation and our understanding of God. That's where the data is. Um, how good are the translations that we've got and how badly do we need new mm -hmm. ones? No, the translations are pretty good. Um, again, that doesn't mean there aren't things to, to um, dicker about and uh, places where there are differences of opinion. Um, I've worked on three translation committees, and um, sometimes I've even done the same book, and I might translate differently based on exactly what the target audience is and what the intention of the, common, of the uh, translation might be. Other places I've worked on translation committees, and there might be, uh, for instance, um, in the New Living Translation, I was on the Isaiah team. There were three of us on the Isaiah team. We each did our work independently, then compared, and then had to come up with the, kind of the, the translation that we would submit as a committee. <laughs> Doing translation by committee, it has some real advantages, but man, I got outvoted a lot. Anyway, um, and, and the outvoting was not necessarily based on a technical analysis of the Hebrew words. Sometimes it was based on people who never stand for that. Saying, oh, okay, <laughs> wow. Okay, but, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of issues involved in, in translation. Um, but again, when I'm working on a translation committee, you know, I mean, they give me, uh, you know, three months, five months to do Isaiah. Well, I can't start from scratch with every word and just kind of do the full-blown, you know, from the beginning, blank slate kind of study that it would take. I'm going to go with basically how I understand the words now, unless something hits me between the eyes and say, wait a minute, check that one out more carefully and see if there's something else that you should know or understand and make a decision about there. 
And that's how translations work. Uh, so we have a kind of the basic result is that lots of translations repeat what other translations had. And that doesn't mean there isn't any new thinking on a particular word, but you know, those, those are kinds of the, but overall, yes, the translations are very reliable. Um, you know, because uh, the, the concepts that they convey are, are typically on target. But there are always little things you can dicker with. Uh, John, having said that, I've I got to ask you to tell the story on um, he who saveth souls is wise, you know, that Proverbs. Oh, yeah. You, you, yeah. Do you want to or not? Yeah, I can. I can. <laughs> it's the politics of Bible translation. Yeah, I mean, the... And, and I don't mean this to be a negative kind of comment, but there are politics involved in Bible translation. Um, you know, when a publisher puts millions of dollars, and they do, put millions of dollars into producing a translation, they can't afford for it to fail. They cannot afford for there to be an uprising of the reading public to say, I don't accept that, and I won't buy it, and I won't use it. Now, that means that there's going to be an impulse toward traditionalism. Because if they upset the Bible reader, the Bible reader is going to say, I'm, I don't like that translation. That doesn't, okay, so there is some politics. It's, it's sort of essential. And in one sense, it's a, it's a proper um, over, overseeing guide to make sure that things don't get too radical at the, at the level of Bible in the pew. Okay, but uh, that also makes, makes there be some reticence toward changing something that has a long traditional impact. So we've got the verse in Proverbs 11.30, which is typically translated in places like the King James Version, etc. He who wins souls is wise. Well, you know, that, that becomes a centerpiece for evangelists and, you know, all of these kinds of things, the importance of winning souls and, you know, that that's, that's, um, that's the path of, of wisdom, to win souls. But then, then you just pause and ask a question, hold it, we're in Israel. We're in the Old Testament. What in the world would winning souls mean if there's no Christ and no gospel and no cross? What in the world would it mean to win a soul? That can't be what it says. But there it is. Now, you start looking around on, on the words and you confront another problem. <laughs> that phrase translated win souls is a combination of a verb and, and a noun that uh, occurs you know, another dozen times or so in scripture. And it consistently means one thing, to take someone's life. Oh. <laughs> you say, okay, now I've got trouble because now it says that he who takes life is wise. That can't be right. Now what do I do? Now you can understand why people ended up with something like wind souls. They're trying to salvage a very difficult textual situation. You know, because they know it can't be that he who takes life is wise. It means to murder somebody. So, um, you know, that's why you get the history in English translations of trying to massage that phrase a little bit. And, and at one point, it's kind of to, to gain a soul, you know, to, and, you know, it becomes win souls. And then that becomes idiomatic for evangelism and bringing people to Christ. And, you know, there's a long historical process behind all of this. And you look at some of the other modern translations today, the, the ESV, and uh, even I think the new uh, 2011 NIV, and they're, they're kind of giving it a, 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 you know, acquiring life, and they don't know what to do with it. But again, that idiom always means to kill somebody. 
So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is we do have a textual variant here on that word wise. The word wise in Hebrew is chakam. And you might not hear this similarity, but the, there's a, uh, another Hebrew word represented, I believe it's in the Septuagint, which is, uh, says that it's violent. And the word for violence you know in Hebrew, Hamas. Hakam and Hamas look very much alike in the letters that they have. It's just switching one letter. And, you know, and, and we actually have a translation that translates it as if Hamas is in the text. That would make more sense. He who takes life. A violent person takes life. Okay? Now you've got takes life used in the, in the way that it used elsewhere in Hebrew text, and you've got a violent person doing it. That also makes sense in the verse, because throughout Proverbs 11, every verse is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the wise and the foolish. And the beginning of Proverbs 11.30 says, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. That is a righteous person, tree of life, extending life. So you expect a contrast. Instead of he who in souls is wise, you expect to contrast something about a wicked or violent person who takes life instead of extending life. And so the idea that the verse should read, a tree of, uh, the, the righteous are a tree of life, but he who takes life, a violent person, takes life away. Now, that makes a lot of sense. But try to get translators to go that direction in a pew Bible, and you're really fighting an uphill battle because they'll say, you know, first of all, you're, you're based on a textual variant with all kinds of, you know, gymnastics textually. You can't just explain that very easily to a, a lay reading audience. And they're used to having this verse be what it traditionally has been. And so something along the traditional line usually ends up hanging around in the, in the translations. They might have a footnote to say, oh, well, here's another reading or some texts read this or that. But that's kind of the challenge in translation. There is an impulse toward the traditional. Uh, and again, there, there are realities. There are economic realities behind all of that um, that, that I, I can't ignore, but I don't like it. In regards to the modern day application of the law, um, can you give us an illustration of the process that you go through in terms of the pursuit of holiness? And can I ask you to use an illustration that's kind of a fun one? What does the tithing laws tell us about the pursuit of holiness? Okay, you know, tithing, first of all, you have to understand the ancient law. Um, now they don't really have taxation in the ancient world. Um, I mean, taxation is tithing. Taxation is to the temple. Temple tithing is part of the way that the temple was supported. Tithing typically was not in terms of money because we are not in a money society, okay? But 10% of their yield, of their gain, uh, whether that's animals that are born or crops that are produced, um, those kinds of things. Now, granted, there are some, there are merchants and they would have had income uh, in monetary form and they might have been tithing those. But for the most part, tithing is taking place in, in kind, you know, whatever it was that they were involved in. Um, so the tithing was the way that the temple was supported. And the temple had to be supported because we have division of labor and therefore there are priests and the priests are doing their task as priests and they, they needed to be supported and the tithing would support them. 
It would support the priests, it would support the Levites, it would support the temple and any kind of construction kinds of things that needed to be done with the temple. This was the way that God's presence was taken care of. Now, uh, so that was part of the, the law, as part of the legislation that that was provided for, that they would do those sorts of, of things. When you get to the idea of the covenant elocution stipulations, uh, this was part of the agreement. If God was going to dwell among them, they had to make commitments of their own uh, resources in order to, um, to attend to the needs of the temple and God's presence. You know, that, that required uh, resourcing. And so that came into that elocution. Now, but we move to Revelation, the canonical elocution level. So how does, how does that work? Uh, again, we're no longer talking about some kind of legislated tithe. Uh, but we don't necessarily go about it by asking the question, does the New Testament repeat that law? I, I don't think that's a good procedure uh, because uh, there may just have been no occasion for it to do so, uh, no reason for it to go into that. So we can't make the decision based on silence or uh, that kind of thing for, from the New Testament. We still have to ask the question, what's involved here? What's involved in terms of revelation, holiness? Uh, how, how would that all work? Now, I think what we can, we can we derive in terms of principle, abstraction, those kinds of ideas, is that God considers it the role and task, obligation of his people to be supportive of his presence uh, by which he is uh, serving in the midst of his people and relating to them. Uh, to me, that follows good precedent of saying that we should be donating to the work of the kingdom. The kingdom is, is the church, and the church is a manifestation of the kingdom today. And therefore, we ought to be uh, using our resources in the support of the kingdom, whether that's in our local congregation or whether it's in the you know, wide world uh, work of, of Christ that's being done. Uh, that that's what is appropriate, proper for us to do, given the fact that we are part of that kingdom and we are trying to be good citizens of that kingdom in relationship with God in that place. Now, that doesn't tell you what your cut ought to be. Okay, we can look and we say, well, for, uh, for God's purposes in the Old Testament, 10% was sufficient to convey those kinds of ideas. And therefore, we could consider that 10% would be sufficient. We are not under any obligation of law. We are under the sense that we want to be kingdom people. And therefore, we want to be contributing to the kingdom of God. Uh, remember, it's all about God. It's not about us and our benefits. It's not about, about us hoarding our gain. It's about the idea of being kingdom members. And so our holiness and relationship with God would suggest that it is appropriate to give generously to the work of God. Um, again, you know, when it comes down to saying how much, um, that's outside of the sociology of Israel, that's too technical a question. Okay, because again, Israel had to be set up as a society to operate with economic soundness. Okay, but that's, that's not the situation that we're looking at now. Uh, so when you ask how much, you can ask the question, well, how much do you love God? How much do you value the kingdom? How much do you feel that uh, you want to contribute to the success of the kingdom and the work of the kingdom? You know, and, and at that point, um, it becomes a way that you express 
your role in the kingdom. And, you know, so what's that look like for you? You know, that's the kind of question it is. Um, to say you're not a good Christian if you're not giving 10%, uh, I think that goes too far. Uh, to say that if you don't give anything, that you're a slacker, well, uh, maybe, I don't, I don't know, but that's, you've got to decide that. You know, when, um, when uh, a spouse's uh, birthday is coming up, you know, the last thing they want to do is say, okay, this is what has to happen. You know, I expect to be taken out to dinner. I do not mean McDonald's. I expect flowers, and one is not enough. I expect chocolates, and I know I'm not supposed to eat chocolates, but I like chocolates, and receiving them is a good thing. This is what's expected of you, and you know, doing the dishes might help you. Okay, the minute that has to happen, something's missing. See, you're supposed to think of those things yourself, and if they have to tell you to do those things, it loses something. Okay, because then it's not coming out of who you are. My wife is in the room listening, you know, and I, I know that. <laughs> but, but see, that's... And, and, you know, with God, it's the same way. You know, if God's got to sit and tell you everything that you're supposed to do for him, well, we're, we're lacking something in the equation. Somehow we're supposed to be taking initiative to play a role in this relationship. Relationship takes work on both sides to make it work. God's done what is sufficient. What are we doing to make that relationship work? Yeah, that's just a little bit of... John, a, uh, a question, an observation, and a suggestion. So oh, I'll walk question, all three. <laughs> the question is, um, what do you... Uh, you use the word holiness as the anchor point through all of this. What do you actually mean by holiness? So I don't think you've actually given us a picture of that. Mm -hmm. The second, the observation is that I think that the default position for most uh, Christians, and for that matter, even outside, when they hear that word, is some sort of idea of piety, mm -hmm. effectively. And it, it, in a sense, it's a sort of an extension of the cultic idea. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about whether things are good, bad, washed, unwashed, uh, acceptable, unacceptable, etc. Mm -hmm. And sort of a, a sort of a contamination idea sitting behind it and being free of contamination. Mm -hmm. And, and yet, uh, if, that's, if that's the imagery, and some of the examples, it's interesting, even so far we've had, have all stayed, like even that last one, inside the world of the church. And yet, the scope of Deuteronomy is certainly as large as life, mm -hmm. and certainly the Genesis work from two weeks ago is as large as life. So, a suggestion is, I find that uh, I just can't work anymore with a word like uh, holiness or um, uh, consecration or whatever, because because it's just so, um, dare I say, polluted by, uh, by the pietistic idea. Mm. And I wonder if it, if, it, uh, if it doesn't work, not as a necessarily a great translation of the Hebrew, but just conceptually, to say, be distinct as I am distinct, mm. uh, when God says, be holy as I am holy. And the suggestion is that if that, if that works, is that it, it mean, for me it means straight away that what you were doing two weeks ago and what you've done today in Deuteronomy, they come together. Um, and the distinctiveness you were saying last time, what it points to is that the distinctiveness is about being human. Mm -hmm. Because what is so unusual in the Genesis account is that the human beings are image of God, which is not the story mm -hmm. anywhere else. So that this, this is, and it sets up the first possibility of even the comparison 
you know, you are image of God, that is, as I am, so you be. As I am holy, you be holy. It only works because you've got that idea of you are, in fact, image of God. And the way, the way image of God is reflected is the totality of human experience, totality of human life. So I wonder if, if we would be, uh, find ourselves being able to capture the kind of the world-changingness of both uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy, if we can shift in our minds from any kind of connection of holiness to pietism to in fact it being what it is to be distinctive as a human being as image of God within this large world. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, certainly I agree that without the image of God we would have no hope of being holy. But holiness is just not, and I don't think you're saying this, it's not just to distinguish us from other creatures. We also have to be holy in reference to other human beings uh, around us. Uh, I was just talking to someone at lunch, and we mentioned this idea that too often holiness, as you said, is connected to a sort of superficial piety or devotion, uh, a, a sense of spirituality. And certainly we're trying to get it much, much more than that. Um, that's not what we should understand by holiness. In the Old Testament, they talked about cleanness, which was a ritual state, but cleanness was part of holiness, and holiness was bigger than cleanness because Cleanness was just focused on the ritual, whereas holiness was the whole package. Uh, in terms of what I mean by holiness, the closest I can get is by that description that, that I gave that holiness is the sum total of God's attributes. And therefore, holiness involves his being just and good and compassionate and merciful and uh, all of those things that are God's, God's attributes. And so that is his holiness, and our holiness is the imitation of those communicable attributes. So again, that's a whole lot more than a sort of superficial piety. That is actually imitating God in all of the ways that we possibly can imitate God. That's, that's a very interesting observation, and I haven't thought about that expansion, but it'd be worthwhile thinking about. That is, in our holiness, are we supposed to imitate some of those aspects of God, which are not the moral connections, um, but are you know, those other things. That's very interesting. I, I, that's worth uh, thinking more about. Yeah, thanks a lot. Once again, John, I've really enjoyed so much of what you've taught us today. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable with the second number on the board there. Um, this process of abstracting and turning things into timeless disembodied truths, isn't that more a part of our modern Western sort of diseased way of thinking? Is that a legitimate process to subject these ancient texts to, particularly considering they're arising out of a culture that's very concrete and embodied in the way it thinks? Or are we doing something mm -hmm. that they would have found quite alien? Um, there is danger of doing things that they would have found alien, and certainly some of the methods of abstraction that we use would not have been the kinds of things that they, they would have been thinking. On the other hand, I want to avoid the, um, the expedience 
of uh, some of the dichotomies uh, of the past that the Greeks thought or abstractly and the Hebrews thought concretely. I, I don't think that is a, um, a legitimate um, divide to make. The Israelites were quite capable of thinking abstractly. Um, but again, there are certain types of abstractions that we might be inclined to that they wouldn't have. So it is something that we always need to be aware of. We don't want to over-principalize or over-abstract in ways that would be foreign in imposing something on the text that it wasn't. That's why I had abstractions, principles, and revelation kind of all in the same box there because it's some mix and match with some of that that we're shooting for. So you're right to identify that as something that we have to be cautious about. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, not talk about holiness anymore, but uh, I know you say that we should focus on our relationship with God. Um, however, I'm still fascinated by what heaven is. In particular, uh, when in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verse 19, Moses said in front of the Israelites, this day I call heaven and earth as witness against you. What, do they, what did Moses and the audience actually understood what heaven is, given they call upon heaven and earth as witness? Mm -hmm. And the second thing also I found in Hebrew, uh, chapter 11, uh, Abraham was said to look forward to a city, terrestrial city that with God as his architects. Mm -hmm. so what do they, ancient people, actually know as heaven, and why do they call heaven as witness? Mm -hmm. what, yeah. they, they call, usually in the international treaties, the witnesses would be the whole series of gods. Of course, that's inappropriate in an Israelite context. They wouldn't call on a whole series of gods as witnesses. So it's more typical to call on the, um, the, um, the, elements of the natural world, heaven and earth, uh, which means basically all of the cosmos to witness. It's impersonal uh, rather than the personal gods, but that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about heaven as a place to go when you die. Um, the other part of your question. Abraham, Abraham that's right, Genesis, uh, Hebrews 11. Um, the, the interesting part about uh, Hebrews is that Hebrews is drawing its illustrations and examples from the ways that the Jews of that time thought. So uh, the author of Hebrews, whoever it is, we don't know, was drawing examples from intertestamental literature and things that had developed. So when the author of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek, he's talking about the Melchizedek as that character had developed in intertestamental literature because that's what his audience knew, and so he was invoking that image, that idea of Melchizedek. And he does the same thing with some of the biblical characters. So there are things that, ideas that took shape in the intertestamental period that you really can't find in the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews is drawing on and using for examples. So in that sense, we could say that at least Abraham may well have perceived that the promises he was receiving went beyond physical promises to some spiritual, that is the land of, uh, of the covenant, which ends up being Israel, that land as being a spiritual entity, not just a physical entity. But even that, the Old Testament doesn't talk about. 
but you would find those kinds of ideas developed in an intertestamental literature, and that often supplies the mm, kind of the fodder for the for the author of Hebrews to draw from. I've got two ways of asking this question. Um, often in Old Testament studies, we talk about there's Torah or law, and then there's wisdom literature. The way I've been hearing you use Deuteronomy today is in a way more like a wisdom way. So I'm just wondering if is that whole category of Torah versus wisdom a, a bad imposition for into Old Testament thought? Mm -hmm. Or put another way, what's the relationship you see between Deuteronomy and Proverbs? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that Torah and wisdom should not be seen as kind of ends of a spectrum, you know, in contradistinction. Uh, I think that Torah, by its very nature and definition, would involve wisdom. Um, I think I've mentioned before, I'm not sure now, um, that uh, wisdom in the Old Testament has intrinsically to do with order. And Torah brings order to life and society. And therefore, if one is pursuing wisdom... It's the pursuit, the, the perception and pursuit of order at all levels in your relationship with God, in society, in the way that you talk, in the way that you raise your families, with government, whatever it might be. Uh, wisdom is represented in this pursuit of order, but it must be understood as order that is centered around God as its source. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Torah defines that because... Torah can bring life, and wisdom brings life. Torah is a recognition of the order that God has ordained, and therefore they're, they're closely related. So I think that, uh, that they, they are closely related items, and in that way, Deuteronomy and Proverbs would be covering similar kinds of material from different directions. Um, the, uh, the laws, the legal sayings in the Pentateuch, including Deuteronomy, give us illustrations of some of the forms that holiness would take as it leads to understanding what order would look like in your society and in your relationship with God. Proverbs has lots of illustrations through proverbial literature of the forms that wisdom would take in lots of other areas. So I think there's a close relationship. Your thoughts on the law as describing Galatians and being a guardian and how, uh, yeah, how does that fit with uh, what's Paul talking about in regards to the law? Is he talking through things in Deuteronomy, or is that different? How does the law being a guardian, revealing sin, uh, things like that, apply in understanding Deuteronomy? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Paul is addressing the issues of his day, and it's logical that he should do so. Uh, the, uh, the Pharisees had a very strong influence in the Judaism of his day, and that was Paul's own training in that, uh, in that camp. And so he's addressing... Uh, some of the issues in contrast between what he's trying to present about the gospel and how that pertains to the law. He's not trying to address the issue of what the law intrinsically was intended to do from the start. He talks about some of the functions that it carried out, a tutor, a guardian, uh, things of that sort. It showed us that there was sin. All of that is true enough uh, but in that, I don't know that Paul is still trying to say, let's go back to Moses and back to Deuteronomy and figure out precisely what the law was intended to do from the start. He's rather talking about some of the functions that it has, and then he gets into the controversies of his day. That is, is the law able to bring you into right relationship with God uh, and salvation and atonement issues and etc. So, uh, again, I would read Paul as trying to 
bring those issues into conversation in the issues of his day. Uh, John, just taking you back to the comments you made about forever mm -hmm. um, and uh, the links that you made earlier about the, the Jewish people's understanding of salvation, I think you said. Certainly, um, I, I recognise they were on a journey, but by the time you get to say 600, the 600s uh, BC and Isaiah's talking to Judah, you get. Um, Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will come, uh, become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations a little bit later. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. My righteousness will last forever. My salvation through all generations. <laughs> it seems to me that at some point in time, there must have been an awareness raising going on amongst the Jewish people um, of the concept of a salvation. The question with the word salvation is always salvation from what? You're going to save someone from what? Of course, we have the deliverance and salvation that God brought about for his people when he took them out of Egypt and out of slavery. That was salvation. It was deliverance from those uh, unacceptable circumstances. Uh, in Isaiah, it's more talking about the deliverance and salvation that God will provide from the nations who are oppressing them, indeed, eventually from the exile, and that he will save them from their exile, save them from destruction, bring them back and reconstitute them as a people. And so that also is salvation. It's a good theological Old Testament term. It uh, shows up, of course, early on, even in a name like Joshua. Uh, which talks about God being the one who saves and uh, the form of the name Jesus itself. And so in that sense, salvation is not an unknown concept. The question is, do they have the concept of being saved from their sins? They may be saved from the consequences of their sins, meaning that their sins led them to be abandoned by God, to go into exile. The exile is a consequence of their sin, and they are saved from that consequence. But that's still not the same as being saved from their sins. Um, we might talk about ourselves being saved from the consequences of sins, but it's not just the consequences. Our sin itself is taken away. And that's where I would still see the difference, that yes, it's further along the path, but it's still not to the New Testament concepts as I would understand it. It's a good question, and it's a, it's a deep question, and it's a difficult question. Uh, lots of people have been content to read the origins of the sacrificial system into Genesis 3 when God makes garments for Adam and Eve. Problem, of course, it doesn't mention anything about the animal that God got the skins from or what he did with it or where that came from or what happened, and it's very difficult to read the entire institution of sacrifice being initiated in between the lines when the text says nothing about it. I just have some inherent problems with that kind of methodology. 
But then if you move along, suddenly you find that people are offering sacrifices, even as early as Cain and Abel. And then you get to Noah, and you get to Abraham, and people are offering sacrifices, and sacrifices are issued in the ancient, or I mean, are offered in the ancient world as far back as our ability to detect it goes. And we say, okay, so where did the Israelite, where, where did God command sacrifices? Well, not really until you get to the time of Moses that he's commanding sacrifices. Yet people were doing it long before then. It's not as complicated a system, because remember, uh, some of the sacrifices with Moses were meant to provide for the purification of the sanctuary. Until you have a sanctuary, they're not going to be offering those sacrifices. Some sacrifices, the burnt offering particularly, are designed when you have a petition to place before God, and you want your petition to be favorably received. That's what Moses offers, I'm sorry, Noah offers, that's more or less, uh, most of the time, what Abraham is offering, a burnt offering. Um, so in that sense, uh, where does this idea of a sacrificial system come from? It does seem messy, and it would have struck you as messy if you observed the whole thing. Where does that come from? Well, again, the Bible doesn't present God as the initiator of that system. Maybe he was, but if he was, the Bible doesn't report where that happened and who that was initiated with and where those guidelines were set down. Sacrifice was already a going thing by the time you get to Moses. So the second option that you suggested, is this God's accommodation? Well, that's possible, but if it is, that suggests really some very intricate providence and sovereignty going on. Because, of course, we have the concept of Christ's sacrifice since the foundations of the world, as if this was God's plan all along, that Christ would come and die as a sacrifice. That means that he kind of knew that whole sacrificial institution would come about. And to know it without instituting it directly, letting it arise within general culture, and then baptizing it by giving it a particular force and focus, it gets very complicated. And again, on those kinds of issues, if we don't have the text giving us the answers, we're only guessing at the answers. And of course, that's the situation we're in. So I lean more toward God is accommodating a system that had already come into place, but it's a system he knew would come into place and therefore had kind of planned for it all along. John, um, sorry, I'm a time, but um, uh, how did the people who are hearing Deuteronomy perceive of death? What did they think was happening in that uh, transition? And are there any clues to whether that was seen as a tragedy or a transition in Jewish funerary rites and activities? No, it is a tragedy. And the people of, of Israel wanted to be spared from it uh, in any way possible. And so they did not see it as a transition. They, of course, did believe that everyone continued to exist after death. Everybody in the ancient world believed that. There was another world, um, and everyone continued to exist after death. But what was the state in which they existed? In Egypt, there were, there were real possibilities. Uh, exaltation, joining with the god in the solar bark across the heavens, joined one with deity, the, you know, the Egyptian uh, way of thinking. But that's unique to Egypt. Uh, in the rest of the ancient world, it was mostly a very drab existence in the netherworld um, in which uh, they, they really had no role. They weren't 
Um, they weren't the concern of the gods. They had nothing to offer the gods, and the gods had nothing to offer them. It was not a place of punishment nor a place of reward. It was just a place of continued existence. And you got, got by if people still living remembered you and remembered your name. And if they remembered you, and in some of the societies, they had ways that the living could provide meals for the dead because there was no way to get your own food down there. And so they have those funerary rites that take place broadly in the ancient world, sometimes in Israel as well. Um, and uh, then you've got the idea of just re being remembered, that that was enough to kind of bring some vitality. But, you know, as, as the Bible says, you know, Psalmist says, no one praises you in Sheol. Sheol is the, the netherworld for Israel. No one praises you there. Um, God has access to it, but it's not a place of God's presence. It's not a place where worship takes place. Um, and Israel, for the most part, had a default understanding of the netherworld based on what, uh, what is present through most of Mesopotamia. Just um, thinking about um, another dimension of sacrifice in the ancient Near East, which was the treaty making. And that amazing picture with Abraham making that covenant with God and the animals cut in half. Can you shed any more light on, on that dimension? Yeah, no, I wish I could. Um, uh, because we would love to shed more light on that, that practice that Abraham does in chapter 15. Um, we have uh, one other incident in uh, Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 34, where he talks about the, um, the division of an animal uh, in making a treaty. But there it seems to be a little bit different concept. Uh, from the ancient Near East, we have... Um, three examples that I can think of that are kind of vague and not really the same kinds of things and they're not connected with treaty making. Um, so we don't really have much about that particular ritual and how it unfolds. Wish we had more. Hi John, thanks for the um, Last time we were here, we talked about um, keeping the garden and this time around we talked about keeping the law. Yes, uh, it's the verb shamar, and uh, both are both are used. And so, what we uh, the preserving, keeping the garden is the job of of guarding sacred space. Uh, the keeping the law is the the observing of it, the recognition of its role and significance. So that's involved with both of them, role and significance and preserving that in any way that you can. But they are the same Hebrew verb, yeah. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, what, did, what would Abraham have thought that was about? Yeah, uh, so the question is, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, what would have Abraham thought that was all about? Um, you know, of course, in the ancient world, there was child sacrifice. Uh, it's not documented very thoroughly in ancient literature or um, archaeology or things of that sort, but we get enough of an indication that we know it was practiced, at least on, on occasion, uh, that it was considered a significant sacrifice, and uh, that it was at times required uh, by a god uh, to do a, a remarkable thing. Um, Abraham would have been aware of that kind of practice and would have, uh, would have seen that sort of aspect to it. Um, he may have been surprised, uh, having thought that this wasn't that kind of God, uh, but we're not told any of that, so we don't know of those things.
if we come at it from the other side and ask, what in the world was God doing uh, to put Abraham through this? Again, he would have recognized that Abraham would have um, seen this as a thing that God sometimes asked for. So it wouldn't have been something way out of left field. Uh, uh, is that an expression you use here? Um, okay. Um, <laughs> seemed to me it had to do with baseball, and you might not use it. But at any rate, um, it would come from nowhere. Um, but um, as, as the situation unfolds, uh, what we have to realize is what God has asked Abraham to do is well beyond anything else that he asked Abraham to do. And I don't just mean because it was his son. This is not about Abraham sacrificing his child, although he's asked to do that. This is about the idea that finally different from all the other situations, God is asking Abraham to give something up for which he gets nothing in return. Okay, when he was asked to leave his land, he was getting land in return. When he was asked to leave his family, he was getting a family in return. There were always benefits for Abraham in everything God asked him to do. And I'm not trying to diminish the faith that it took for Abraham to do that. But nonetheless, there was always something for him to gain. Here, there's nothing for him to gain. And in fact, by sacrificing Isaac, he would lose every gain that he had had previously because the covenant without, there is no covenant without Isaac. Isaac is the promised son. That's where the family is going to come from. That's who the land is going to come from. There is no covenant without Isaac. And so more than being asked to sacrifice his child, he's being asked to sacrifice his future, his destiny, his covenant, his whole um, understanding of what God was providing He's asked to put all of that on the altar because God asked him to. And as I would say it, if we want to get some sense of application of that, we shouldn't ask, how would you feel if God asked you to sacrifice your child or even something even less, uh, to send your child to the mission field or something like that. Um, it's, it's not about you and your personal relationship with your child. You should ask the question rather, um, what would it be like if God were to come and say, you know, I'm sorry, um, there's, there's not going to be any heaven in this picture. There's not going to be any eternity in this picture. All your benefits, um, you're not going to have those. But you know, I, I want you to worship me anyway. I want you to love me anyway. You up for it? You know, that's the kind of question. Are you willing to give up all the benefits connected with your faith, that benefits package that we talked about? Are you willing to, to, to do without that? And would you worship God anyway? And that's really what Abraham is demonstrating, that he indeed was, was in. I'm in. I'm going to do it. Um, even if there's nothing in it for me, that's, that's what's at stake there. I think it's an important issue. Thinking about the presence of God, and do you think the children of Israel had access to the presence of God? For my reading of the Bible, it just was in the Holy of Holies and the high priest accessed that once a year. Did that, when they came to the temple, did they experience the presence of God, do you think? Uh, from everything that we read in the Bible, yes, they did. I mean, when we read the psalmist's expressions about how uh, joyful he is about coming to the temple, uh, that he feels in, in, that he sees the face of God uh, because God's presence is there, even though he doesn't really see anything physically. And so they did experience nearness to God. He'll say, how, how wonderful those who are just watchmen at the gates. Wouldn't that be great? Just to be there by God's presence all the time. The, the very pigeons that roost there in the... Wow, 
just to be that close to the presence of God all the time. So by the psalmist's reflections, we get the impression they did, did feel that. Um, and uh, you said in your talk that the um, speech act theory was something that you were prepared to use some of it, but mm -hmm. didn't fully agree with it all. Can you talk about that hermeneutical question? Uh, very briefly, because that does get technical, and I'm not a specialist. Um, but speech act theory was designed by those who really were removing meaning from the elocution entirely. In other words, it's like if you program a computer that if you hit a certain key, a certain micro program is going to run. Uh, that key is meaningless, but it's, it's just set up to work that way. It's almost a mechanical response. And so speech act theory was actually developed by those who were diminishing and almost obliterating meaning from the whole communicative process, which of course I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. But still their, their categories are helpful. For people who still have questions, John, you'll be happy to talk, uh, informally answer a few, but I know that some of us, some of us will want to go and I thought uh, rather than people just dribbling out, uh, we'd all like to, I'm sure, thank uh, John and Kim for their visit and all they've given us. Thank you.